ברוך השם, you're a bad Jew. שלום. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Bad Jew, the place where there is no such thing as a bad Jew. In this space, my Bad Jew WhatsApp community asks questions that get turned into episodes later on. This episode has a reoccurring guest. This is the first reoccurring guest we've ever had on this podcast. It's incredibly exciting because she was such a grand slam the first time. We got to bring her back. Welcome back, Yiska Smith. How are you doing today? Chaz, thank you. Thank you. From my home in Jerusalem, it's so good to be back with you in your studio. I'm feeling great. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. I am thrilled to hear that. And I want to say as well that after doing your interview the first time, a lot of people came out to me afterwards and they were like, I know Yiska Smith. I know Yiska Smith. And I was like, whoa, no way. And so like you have really touched the lives of so many people in so many wonderful ways. You've really given people... Uh, a certain sense of tikkun hamadot. You've helped people with their neshema in so many different beautiful ways. And I want to commend you for that because I've heard just so many resounding experiences and, and testimonials about you. And so that's really something that it shouldn't be overlooked. The other thing as well is that because you're our first reoccurring guest, you know, normally at this point in the interview, as you know, I would ask you to do the bad Jew challenge, telling your life story in four minutes. <laughs> we will not have to do that in this case because you've already done it. You've already earned your right of entry. Um, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> Baruch Hashem, right? So if you do want to go and listen to Yiska's first episode to hear her four-minute life story, along with her teaching of how Judaism has changed, be sure to go to her episode, How Judaism Has Changed. It was really an engaging episode, and there you can really see the beginning of Yiska's expertise on this show. But now that you're here for the second time, I think we should just get right into it. What do you think? I'm with you. Let's do it. Let's, Let's do go. it. Let's do it. So the question for today's episode is, you know, we, we've, we've heard more often than not that God is everywhere, right? There, we've also heard on the other side of that coin that there are different points in people's lives, whether it's predominant point or very small temporary point, whatever that status is, that people lack the awareness of God. They wonder where God has gone, or they they will find that they just aren't as connected in certain parts of their lives. And that happens more often than not. People's connection to God or that sense of awareness of where God is, it fluctuates over time. It wavers. It's not a, it's not a consistent pendulum. So my question then is, why aren't we always aware of God? Okay. <clears throat> Some light talk coming up, I see. <laughs> I don't like small talk. Yeah. No, this is... Uh, I could see that. Yes. Okay. So to answer this question, I first want to offer that there's no one answer. There are many components, many variables that have caused at different times in Jewish history for Jewish people to lose a God consciousness and awareness of God. Even, by the way, Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen, may his memory be for a blessing. He said in the 1960s, I have a recording of this, where he said it astounds him 
that he goes to different Jewish symposia and they discuss all types of issues that affect the Jewish people and no one mentions the word God. And the idea that anything can be called Jewish and leave out God is of concern. Since we brought, going way back to our matriarchs and patriarchs, the existence with an awareness of the existence of the divine, of the one, of the creator, of the force, of the eternal. That's something that Abraham and Sarah and all the other matriarchs and patriarchs really gave the world, was this sense of a, of a, of a one, a oneness that's one with everything. So here it is, 2023, and my experience as I've dabbled in lots of text, lots of different types of prayer and meditation in the Jewish in the Jewish context for over 50 years. And it's always astounded me. It's always surprised me. It's so many people who who are proud to be Jewish. But what about being in conversation, being in relationship with God? That seems that God consciousness seems to have gone to the back burner. I want to bring up what I consider to be, when I think about this and meditate on this, a few of the external variables and then a few of the internal. Sure. First of all, I'm addressing the absence or the lessening of a God consciousness in the Ashkenazic world. Having lived in Israel for decades, uh, I don't see as much of that in the Mizrahi world. Those are the Jews who moved to Israel from, from this area, from the Mideast, a lot of the Muslim Arab countries. The Ashkenaz Jews who came to Israel and have gone to the Americas and other parts of the world came from Europe, which was, of course, a Christian-dominated culture. So there's very major differences in how one has a relationship with the Almighty, with the Divine, through the lens of Christianity and through the lens of Islam. So right there, we see that the Jews who lived among the Christian culture and the Jews who lived among the um, Arab Muslim culture really developed very differently in terms of a God consciousness. It's much more common for Mizrahi Jews in Israel to have a higher awareness or a more sensitive awareness of a God consciousness, where a lot of the Ashkenaz brought to Israel a very obedient, very strong commitment to observing the law, which is more external performance and awareness of a God consciousness is more internal. Yes, that's actually really interesting. So you're saying, so the Ashkenazi side focuses more on the law and following specific rituals while Mizrahi and Sephardic follow more of a connection specifically to Hashem? Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, I, I mean, both would believe that the other is very legitimate. However, right. the culture, the cultures that they lived, you know, years ago, I learned this expression, as the world goes, the Jews go. As the Jews go, the world goes. Meaning when we're among the diaspora living with non-Jewish people, especially when we, we're not in power, we're, 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 the, we're yielding to the host country's power, uh, which for the most part never ends up where they live happily ever after. <laughs> it's it's not, not so good. But living among Christ, Christians is a lot different. It's a very different experience compared to living among a, a Muslim culture. And I'm staying away from 
Yeah. And I'm going back, you know, I'm going back to like, you know, 500 years. This is not just any recent political arena talk here. So one of the external, so I'm focusing more on the Ashkenaz experience, even though the majority of Israelis are Mizrahi, the Ashkenaz for the American and North American or Canadian American Jew is more connected to the Ashkenaz traditions. And that's what Leonard Cohen was talking about in terms of the, how could you go to a Jewish symposium and not bring up the name of God? There were two major pieces in history that profoundly, in the most negative ways possible, affected the Jewish people. One was the Enlightenment, the Age of Reason. That's in the 17th, 18th centuries. It may seem far away where we are, because we're in the 21st century, but when it was born, it was totally radical. It was extremely radical because it really adhered to this new belief with these new philosophers, Kant, Kant and many others, that science and logic give more knowledge and understanding than tradition and religion. So you can imagine how this locks horns with Jewish theology. Not that, the, we, not that Jew, Jewish theology does not ascribe to science and logic, but that it could replace religion for the for the Jewish culture that was very uh, uh, that was it had devastating effects in terms well, of I'm, assimilation. Sure, and th- this question I'm I'm going to ask might be an entirely different episode, so forgive me if it's going <laughs> to completely sidetrack us. But isn't I mean, Judaism time and time again, from what I understand, the Torah has acknowledged science at many different levels. Oh, oh so how, absolutely. So how could science replace the Torah if they kind of can work hand in hand? Because the philosophers who promoted it and the majority of the people who adopted, who really welcomed the Enlightenment, they they were Christian and they became atheists. Now, for pockets of Jewish communities who lived around this, uh, for a while, we were not even allowed to go to the universities. Even if we wanted to, we weren't allowed. But once we were allowed, well, we see what happened with the birth of the reform movement. That came about when Jews were now allowed to partake of the benefits of the Enlightenment. And the collateral damage from that was a denial of any divine, of, of a divine, divinely inspired, divinely intervened Torah. That, that's, and it came out of the Enlightenment uh, consciousness because they, de- they compartmentalized it. Either you ascribe to science and logic or you're going to stay uninformed, ignorant, old-fashioned, superstitious, traditional, and religious, which you and I know that's not true, but that's what was happening. The Enlightenment had a devastating effect on the Jewish consciousness. Hmm. Secondly, in terms of external situations, the Industrial Revolution. And that's like the, the first, I mean, we're now in the fourth of the Industrial Revolutions, but the very beginning, the steam engine, the beginning to manufacture things like in, in, in mass, 1760 to 1840, this was a process of changing from an agrarian and handicraft economy to one dominated by industry and machine manufacturing. And what that did to the individual it fed into atheism. People who live in nature, people who work with their hands, are much more aligned with the energy of being part of something greater. 
I see that with my garden. I mean, I plant these little, little, you know, plants and flowers, even my fruit trees. Mm -hmm. I mean, this year already I can see with my pomegranate tree, there's like over maybe a hundred. Last year there were 10. How could I like, that's, I mean, it's wonder. It's, it's a wonder. When people move into the urban environment, move to the factories to derive an income, whether the whether you're the owner or the, the the worker, you begin to lose this sense of awesomeness of engaging the creator's wonder in your own life. I wanted to add to that as well, and I'm thinking I'm thinking for someone in that time who you know maybe they grew up in a rural in a rural world. And then they, you know, that, that, that rural world, I'm going to pretend was a, you know, very Christian conservative valued kind of hometown. And that eventually saw the industrial revolution. That's where jobs were being created. That's where literal cities were being created out of the factories. Cars were being, were being created eventually entire, you know, projects were being formed. They hear these stories of God's creation, but the only creation that they are physically seeing is the creation of the city and the industrial revolution is offering. Exactly, exactly. They began to rely more on the human mind creating the world. But isn't that important? Than, I, I, I don't think anything that I've said is either important or not important. It's what okay. you do with it. Okay. What we can do, I, I mean, I'm not suggesting that we all move back to the farms or agrarian <laughs> okay. culture. I'm not suggesting that, although at times I thought about that, I, have we advanced or have we not advanced? It really depends on what the variables are that what the metric is. Right. I'm just right. I'm just trying to share some external um, yes. happenings yes. where it affected the Jewish psyche, the zeitgeist of the Jewish mindset of being in awe of the Creator. Really, there's no way one would go through the day without me mentioning God's name fifty times. Let's say right. And right. this. And this had a, the two of these together because they really historically happened at very similar times in the 17th, 18th century. But alongside this, we have the Baal Shem Tov, 1698 to 1760. So he was born shortly after the Enlightenment. He died in 1760. That's the beginning of the first Industrial Revolution. And what was he already talking about that made him unique? We need to reclaim God consciousness. Hmm. This is exactly what he was addressing in Ukraine to, at first it was the Ashkenaz uh, communities that the adopted culture, the metric of how good you are was external performance. He wanted to diminish that. It's not a matter of how many mitzvot you observe, how many pages of the Talmud you're learning, how many times a week you show up to make the minyan at the Beit HaKnesset? What matters is, are you feeling close to your creator? Mm -hmm. Are you sensing inwardly your soul? Which really is a more of an Eastern approach. And even though he came from Ukraine, he relied on the teachings of the Zohar and the Kabbalah, which come from Israel in about uh -huh. the 2nd century CE. And the 16th century CE in Svat and in Meiron, where where the this is where it, it happened. Jewish mysticism was birthed. Wow, uh, was was birthed and cradled right here in the Mideast. So he relied on that type of awareness, 
And that's why he was considered to be quite radical. And a lot of people pushed back on him because they weren't familiar. And you know the nature of people. We resist change. It's part of, I think, a survival technique. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 So that's what was happening around us. But there was something else happening within us because mm-hmm. of the external uh, dimensions, the external uh, circumstances we really began to move into a survival mode of living our Judaism. We were no longer thriving, we were surviving. And when you survive, if you speak to people who have survived trauma, in the middle of whatever produced the trauma, all that dominates is just getting through the day. In this case, for Jewish people, to get through the day unharmed, alive without a hut being burnt to the ground in let's say ukraine russia poland without one's wife being raped without a husband being murdered without one's children being kidnapped people really were not sensitive to a godly consciousness they were doing everything they could just to breathe just to be and we forget this we live in with such abundance both physically and also mentally and, and emotionally. So now we, we are afforded, we're in a different kufa now. We don't have to focus as much on surviving. We can really spend time on thriving, discovering our creative energies, discovering the creator's energy with a capital E inside of us, which is our soul. So that's part of because I don't, I don't want the listeners to ever believe, God forbid, that I'm that there's a negative judgment towards anybody here. It's, it was part of the collateral damage of both the, what I talked about externally and what was happening to Jewry in Europe for like 2,000 or 1,600 years. Hmm. It was a nightmare. I'm talking before the Holocaust, the Crusades, the, the Spanish Inquisition, the pogroms in Russia and Ukraine and also in Poland, and also I would say the UK and in France. I mean, this episode after episode, it was one big horror movie. You had in this dark space, you had certain philosophers, certain rabbis, the Rambam, for example, who really, I I see it as like a shooting star. It's a dark, dark night and like, oh, there's a Rambam. (laughs) Oh, there's a Natsiv. Oh, there's a Rambam. But they came and they went. They left us with teachings that we still learn today, with eternal teachings. But the everyday blue-collar, cobbler, blacksmith, farmer who could hardly support a family and the life of a woman raising children. There were so many children, so much child mortality, women dying in childbirth. I mean, it was a hard, hard life. There was so much poverty, mm-hmm. so much disease, plus the persecution all yeah. forcing the Jews to really go into survival mode. It was not a good time to be Jewish. And as you're talking, as you've been explaining this very holistic view of the Jewish experience of the diaspora pre-Israel, right? I'm having flashbacks to our interview before. I'm seeing this really du- this very direct tie-in between you you said you even used a phrase that was used in the previous one, which is surviving versus thriving, right? These, right, different, right. These, these different phases of existing. I've also never heard 
of the Rom bomb or any of the other teachings being described as a shooting star. And I think that's actually a really great metaphor to describe how something so bright and so wonderful can come and go. And yet we're left there wondering, what do we do with this information and that confusion until we can get to that thriving place? You know, thank God for Israel. And I, I really just do see the tie-in between now that you now that you're it's describing this and creating this environment, the tie-in from the previous episode where you were talking about getting so caught up in the rituals that you forget to connect to God. Yeah. We forget when we're busy surviving right. what the mitzvot, what the commandments, what the rituals, what the prayers even are supposed to manifest. They're supposed to manifest something deep inside. So I wanted to move to, if I may, yeah. to, the, to the second part of this conversation about sure. where did God go? So or where, why, I, why, where did we go? I don't right. know what the question is. I don't think God has gone anyplace. I think it's we that went. And so, so we left God. Well, but I, I don't want it to sound so, it, it's, such a it's such a negative, we didn't, it's not so much we left God we, we were so distracted by the daily occurrences around us, we, we didn't mean to, uh, but the, dis the distractions really occupied. They competed for all of our time. So what you're saying almost reminds me of what Nietzsche said, right? Where he, Nietzsche described in his philosophies the Ubermensch. And the Ubermensch is the human being, the phase of the human experience that killed God not just left God, but killed God, that overcame God, right? In this case, you're saying we didn't actually kill God. We've taken a detour from God. Yes, yes, a hiatus. A hiatus. <laughs> we took a, li a, a leave of absence. <laughs> uh, however, there was a student of a student of a student going back to the Baal Shem Tov who lived in Warsaw, the Piyasetzna Rebbe, Rabbi Kalanimus Kama Shapira, who was murdered in a concentration camp in November 1943. Uh, he wrote in Warsaw, he wrote six books that had to do with spiritual pedagogy, cultivating meditative and contemplative practice, seeing, seeing life through the lens spiritually, the lens of the weekly Torah portion. And then he wrote a book during the actual beginning of World War II, moving in as it moved into a Holocaust, until 1942, three years worth of Torah that really reflected without him specifically mentioning what was happening, he would respond through the weekly Torah portion how to be in those dark moments. It was and and he he mentions in one, and that seventh book is called Ish Kodesh, but I want to share one paragraph that I find so it gives me so much hope. And it gives a lot of people hope. And I hope it gives you hope and all the listeners hope. Why do we even believe after what I said that we can actually reclaim God consciousness? If we've been so programmed in, his, in the past two years, 2,000 years of history, to be in this survival mode, what would lend itself for me to even believe I could break with that consciousness? I could break with that paradigm? And this is what the PSS and the Rebbe writes. We pray, our Father, compassionate Father, have compassion on us. The first thing we ask for is to have compassion. We can't do this. We can't restore, reclaim, rebuild 
if it's not a gesture of compassion, if it's not a movement towards compassion, awaken within our hearts a spark of desire and awareness. This is cultivating mindfulness. And this so is that, all happening within the Warsaw ghetto. No, no. This was written. Be, he lived in Warsaw in what oh. became the Warsaw ghetto. The, oh. the Jew, yeah, he, he lived in Warsaw and that he lived in the Jewish neighborhood. I see. And what happened after the, after the beginning of World War II, the Germans began to forcibly transfer other Jews from Poland into the Jewish neighborhood. Right. Right. And then in the spring of 1940, 1940, six months after the war started, eight months, that's when the walls actually went up, sealing it as a ghetto. Right. But but he was living in the for him, he was in the same house. And he had wrote those books. He had wrote, yeah. he had written all this beforehand. Six other books. So what I'm quoting is from the book, one of the books before. But while he was there, still, that's when he compiled the seventh book. While this was getting worse and worse and worse, that's wow. for another. An, that's for another. Um, another visit. Another okay. Yes. <laughs> so, so what he writes in this book, he actually is giving us the words to cry in. I don't know if it's crying in, crying out. I, I, I'm more. What resonates with me is to cry in, because it's really this the divine presence that I believe we really want to in, to engage and to encounter. Awaken our hearts a spark of desire and awareness so that we will know that it is not enough to be like a mere servant, the son of a maidservant. It is true that he too serves and obeys the king, but his work is to grind away at the millstones far from the king. These are all metaphors of how he saw Orthodox Jewry. They were grinding away. They were faithful. They were they were obedient to the king. And all they did was serve and obey, but they did not hear the king's words. They did not enjoy or take pleasure by sensing the illuminating beauty of the king's radiance. They were, they were peasants in hamlets doing what they were ordered to do. This is a service with a closed mind and a dulled heart. Instead, that's not enough for us. That's the first part of claiming a God consciousness. This is not what I was created for. What's going on now in the world, an absence of God consciousness, this is not working. Hmm. It's producing loneliness. It's producing hate. It's producing anger. It's producing confusion and mistrust. It's not working. So even though externally one could be very committed to obeying the external demands, but he compares that to someone grinding away all day at the millstone. Instead, what he believes we all passionately desire and long is to be among those, as we are described in Deuteronomy 14.1, you are children to the eternal, your God. Whenever we do God's work, whether in learning, Torah, praying, or meditating, or observing any of the mitzvot, we sense our closeness with an open mind, with an open heart, because we are children of the king. So we are in the palace. We're sitting on the king's lap, metaphorically speaking. We hear the king's voice in our lives. We sense closeness. And that is how he believes we can reclaim a God consciousness.
and he believes this is embedded in our spiritual DNA. And I and I would argue even to go, he doesn't say it, but I um, like it when he says, when we do mitzvot, we can feel ourselves growing closer and closer. I would say, I would argue that this really goes beyond the Jewish world also. I do believe because everyone's created in the image of God. Not everyone has the Torah, but everyone has a soul. Everyone Absolutely. has a soul. So go for that. Go for that. That's how we can feel and sense closeness. In the Jewish tradition, it's through the mitzvot. It's through the tefillah, the prayer. It's through making brachot and observing the halachot, like Shabbat and kashrut. But all those are means to an end. And the end is closeness with our spiritual parent. That's beautiful. That really is beautiful. It reminds me, I you know, before, I, I, as you know, I like to do research on a lot of the on, on the concepts before, and actually, this was a this was a tough subject to find because uh, I think this is something that is not talked about as much in I'm going to call it mainstream Judaism, right? I'm not talking about mainstream media. I'm talking about what you normally hear inside a synagogue, right? And I, I eventually came across this from the Pittsburgh Jewish Chronicle. The J Pittsburgh Jewish Chronicle. Uh, talked about, you know, created in God's image, and then we see God's face, right? When people are behaving as such, you are seeing God's face. You are acting in God's way. There is, but one thing that was interesting is that it says there is no word. There's no word for face in the singular in Hebrew. Only faces, plural, panim. Hebrew teaches yes. us that we do not have a face. We have faces, right? And then the next part of this. It describes the fact that we actually have 613 faces. Each of us can be 613 different faces, mitzvah by mitzvah. Multiply this by the opportunity, the responsibility for all Jews to keep the mitzvot. Then we alone possess the potential to create 14 million faces of God, each with 613 faces of God. But all humankind was created in God's image, so every one in 7 billion people on earth can also become some of God's faces. That ties in perfectly with what you were just saying. And I thought it was just a beautiful way to describe that. And I think you really covered this concept of looking spiritually into ourselves in a modern world, a world that now has AI, a world that now is developing new ways to connect technology to human beings, also known as singularity. When's the last time that we connected our soul to our body through our neshema, right? That importance to get in touch and recenter yourself. I think that was just really beautifully said. And you gave such a holistic view of that history to explain how these, how we've taken a detour from God until then. So that's just, it was really an insightful teaching. Thank you so much, Yiska. Oh, you're so welcome. It's a privilege. This is, I'm excited to share these teachings with the world. This gives us hope. This is putting hope. light. You know, there's a phrase in Hebrew just a little bit of light can push away a lot of darkness. Ah. It's like if you if you light a candle in a dark room, eventually as the pupils adjust, the whole room is lit up. That's right. So if you look at the volume of the darkness and the volume of a flame, it just naturally pushes it away gently, softly. What I'm sharing with you is is light. 
near mitzvah the Torah or it says in, in, in the book of Proverbs, near mitzvah, that the mitzvah is light and Torah is or, is also light. So that's the ultimate end destination of observing or learning is to reveal the light. And I the light that. allows, yeah, and that's when we connect this joy and this happiness and celebration. There's a sense of wonder. Heschel says that to be spiritual is to live in radical amazement. This, what we're doing right now, I see is radically amazing because I feel the presence of the divine with us. I, That's amazing. That's radically amazing. amazing. It's pretty yeah. amazing. It's 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 absolutely beautiful. And you know, I, I definitely learned a lot, and I appreciate you tolerating my small little challenges here and there. But I leave this conversation with you know a ton of you know, I think admiration and wonderment for the world. And I want to thank you. Giska, for those who are listening, what is the best way for them to connect with you? Well, directly, I would say email, and then also to listen to podcasts in the past. I'm not doing the podcast now because I'm in the middle of writing a book, which is really demanding a lot of focused attention and creative energy. But on my website, there are there are podcasts. And also they people could subscribe to my periodic newsletter. So whenever I'm starting a new course online, I, uh, I put it out there so people can register from all over the world. And also the other way they can get in touch with me. I'm saying this, listeners, whenever you come to Jerusalem, email me every other Shabbat morning. I host a gathering of all kinds of incredible, incredible souls we sing, we learn, we chant, we eat, we, we share, we meditate. It's an alternative prayer space in my garden. And it's really remarkable. So you're invited when you're in Jerusalem, those who are coming now, those who will come in the near future, just be in touch and say, could we come to the gathering? And I'd be more than happy to invite you and provide all the information you would need. And Yiska, I threatened this last time and I'll threaten it again. The next time I'm in Israel, you can bet I'll be at that Shabbat, no doubt about it. Oh, you sure will. And I, I'm not going to threaten you. I'm going to promise you that if you don't show up, <laughs> don't ever, don't ever think I'm coming back to one of your uh, podcasts. <laughs> you're on. Yes, good. Thanks okay. again for being on Bad Jew. If you are mm -hmm. listening, please be sure to give this podcast a five star review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you so so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Shalom. Sure.